everyone and welcome to this latest edition of 101 George Street, the podcast from Mowbray, Scotland's National Centre for Children's Literature and Storytelling. My name is John Malloy and on this week's episode I will be talking to author and Scots language storyteller Susie Briggs. Susie is an author, storyteller, musician and songwriter whose published works include the books Nip Nebs, published in 2013, and Nip Nebs and the Last Berry, which was published in December of last year. Susie, thank you for joining us on the show. Hi, it's lovely to join you. It's so exciting you've got a podcast. Being a storyteller must be incredibly exciting. What first inspired you to become one? Well, when I was wee, my parents and grandparents were fine storytellers, but they weren't professional storytellers and that they visited schools and things. They just were really good tail twisters, so they were. And I think we all have that capacity to tell a good story when we're with our friends. We'll, um, you know, we'll say, "Oh, you guess what happened to me?" And you know, and then you spin the yarn. And so it's 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 a natural human thing to do is to teach. And we heal each other with our stories as well. So you know, your experiences might be able to to guide someone who's a bit lost. You know. So when I was wee, storytelling was always around me, but I never really saw it as that. And my father would tell me stories made up at bedtime. And he was a hard-working man. He worked at the ICI in Dumfries. And I never, you just take it for granted. And he'd sit in a room and tell us stories that he'd make up, like about Dr. Gigglygog, the magic wizardry man, and the wee fairies that lived in the forest, which still captures my imagination and is probably why I am Susie Sweet Pea Fairy as well as an author so and my papa used to tell us really grim stories really scary stories he'd be like six-year-old sitting on his knee and he'd tell me stories about ghosts that existed in Dumfries where he'd seen them and just magical and my mum would tell stories about things from her childhood and family history and so great but it wasn't until I was in my uh, 20s that I met Tony Bonin and he's a storyteller I didn't realise it was an actual thing, something you could actually do as a profession. And he had a workshop, a series of workshops called Tailblazers, and a lot of people went on them, including Renita Boyle, and that's where I met the lovely Renita. And and through that, he created a whole, him and Anne Errington, created a whole uh, win of new storytellers, a new wave of storytellers, and I became one from that point onwards. And I dress up as Susie Sweet Pea Fairy. Initially, it was, initially it was, um, you know, if you create a character for yourself, then that the nerves can leave you because it's not mm. you doing it. Susie mm. Sweet Pea, you know? um, but people seem to to like her, so she stayed. It's interesting you should say that. I I taught drama as a subject in schools and colleges for about 10 years. And I used to say that to my students, the, the character, the persona is your, your suit of armour. Yeah, you're feeling yeah. nervous or you're feeling exposed. And if you think the audience is looking at you, you as an individual, the character or the persona that you have can kind of deflect their gaze a little bit. That's right. And your character has um, coping mechanisms that maybe your real self doesn't have. 
And that's quite an interesting aspect of being a different character when you're working. Would you say the influences that you've had to become a storyteller, they've mainly come from friends and family of people like you know? It's not a case of that you've, you've sat down and you've read the history of storytelling and the, the tradition. Oh, no, definitely, definitely, definitely what you've said. It is from the influences around me, and I'm very, 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 very grateful for all of those. When the careers advisor came round to the school and asked me what, what I wanted to do, I didn't say I want to be a Scots language author and a storyteller because that was never something I thought I could be. I didn't honestly, I think I said painter and decorator <laughs> <laughs> at the time. Why? Because it was creative. It was the most creative, but something you could get paid for. Yeah. <laughs> Probably yeah. what I said. I said I wanted to be an actor and I was told to get a job with a drill. <laughs> You often perform in front of younger people, and I've seen you perform in front of a young audience, but you also perform in front of older people and, and, and audiences of any age. What do you prefer? What's your preference? Well, I've got no preference because every audience that you meet brings something new to you every time, and you bring something new to them every time. Even if it's the same story you're telling, uh, there's always something fresh happening. And also I find that no matter what physical age you are, if you're telling a story and you're doing it well, everyone becomes childlike in their sense of wonder. And that's the magic of telling a good story. We're all children of different ages. Yes, and at different times. <laughs> yeah. So I've, I've had, uh, I had a wonderful experience where I did an event with, for children, but the it was quite badly organised, this event. I'm not going to say where. And I think they admitted it themselves. It was just a bad, you know, sometimes that happens. So I turned up and I travelled quite a distance and there was one elderly gent who turned up to my children's event. He wanted to meet me because he'd seen me, seen my name in the Scots language kind of world community and wanted to meet me because he was part of the original sort of wave of Scots language promotion and stuff back in this I think it'd probably be in the 70s probably very elderly gent he's a very big guy and by the end of my show I ended up just being a little Q&A with him and a few of the volunteers from this event and by the end of the event I had hidden the pixies because I had pixies at my event at the end of the event he, he was running around like a big lumbering giant looking for these pixies which I thought was amazing and I thought this is great you know you're nearly 80 years old and you are like what do they look like what do they look like that's brilliant that, how do you adapt your delivery as a storyteller for a young and old audience or, or don't you adapt I do you have to adapt you have to adapt I mean when we did the last very book launch at Moat Brave we mostly had families but then a group came in and were quite fascinated and they seemed to, they presented themselves as being quite childlike in their wonder as well. So I said, well, sit down and I'll tell you a story. So I did. I told them it. And it was not much different to the way I would tell it to a group of children. But these were like five adults, <laughs> you know. So mm. you learn th through experience to adapt. You can't just keep, you can't churn out the same thing all the time. You, you mould it and you weave it differently. And it's, it's working with the energies in the room in the space and you have to create yourself a stage when you're a storyteller you have to create that that stage of this is me this is my this is my presence otherwise you lose your audience yeah you need to own the space 
Uh-huh. And um, I think you, you set the rules. That's the interesting thing about being a storyteller. And I'm saying that as someone who, who is not a storyteller. What I find fascinating about storytellers is that they set the rules. They create their space. They, in that little moment, wherever that may be, it could be somewhere busy on a high street or it could be inside a, a, a quite a quiet enclosed space or, or a room. For that 10-minute set or half an hour set or whatever, however long it's going to be, that session, they are the master of ceremonies. They get to dictate how the, the mood and the vibe, how does that flow. It's incredibly, it's fascinating to watch, actually. Yeah, aye, and it, and it is. And I'm, I'm, I sometimes stand outside myself watching, if that makes any sense, and, and feel very pleased with myself that I've managed to keep the attention of, you know, 20 to 30 children while there are... 75 other things they could be getting involved with mm. you know like at festivals for example there's fairground rides there are performers performing but they have chosen to sit with me for 20 minutes and and listen to a story that i've written which is great <laughs> i know scottish culture and the scots language in particular are subjects that are very close to your heart why do you feel that it's important to perform and write in scots well, it's a very good question, and I get asked this a lot. The next generation need to understand that the voice they speak with daily is valid and beautiful, and it's just like any other accent or language on the planet. Now, I notice your accent is from Liverpool, and you'll have experienced your own stereotypes and your own discrimination with that. I'm more than sure you have, because I have friends that speak in Liverpudlian, and um, they tell me the same. We have the same. It's similar experiences. So there is a lot of prejudice and stereotypes that exist around Scots, which I've experienced myself. And I could tell you loads of stories where I've been treated second class or stupid or been accused of of aggression when using Scots words in meetings, which I have called out. And I remember when it happened, it was a room full of people and people knew who I was as a Scots language writer, but this, this guy didn't. And he called me out for using, he's like, don't use that language with me. And I was like, you mean in my Scots language? And everybody sucked her breath and, oh, you don't say that. <laughs> She'll call you out. So, um and it's quite bizarre and it's really frustrating to watch it and be experience it happening. Why do I write in Scots? Well, I'd, I'd always wanted to be a writer for children, but I've only ever been taught to read and write in English. And it never, I never dawned on me. It was just, that's what it was. But just let that sink in. I'm born Scottish and all I've ever been taught to read and write in is English. And I'm not the only in that's experienced that. So in my 20s, I started writing in English, and one story was called The Wee Sleepy Sheepy. I sent it to publishers for years, because it takes a long time to get an answer from a publisher, and while you're waiting, you can't send it anywhere else. But the final rejection letter said, we will publish your story if you resubmit it without the Scottish flavour. Really, it's not a, it's not a pot noodle seasoning. Hmm. This is my language. And it was then I realised that that, and it was just one Scots word in the title, we, we sleepy sheepy. That we, we word became a huge deal for me. So I rejected them. I tore up the letter, took out all my stories that I'd written in English and 
very naively started to translate them into Scots. Now I was new to Scots because it wasn't a it was a language I spoke but was blended with English. I'd never written it down before and I'd never really read it except for when I was at school during burn supper season, you know. And around that same time, Matthew Fitt and James Robertson, Susan Rainey, they were publishing books for Wayne's translations of Winnie the Pooh, Roald Dahl, and they were putting out the Katie Beardy books. Um, and I was in a play read talk busts in Kakubri, and I heard two mums talking, and one of the mums scoffed at one of the, the wee baby board books and said, this is gobbledygook. How are our children supposed to understand this? And I find myself lean over and quite passively, aggressively saying, that gobbledygook is your language. I speak it, my wains speak it, and I think it's bra that our books so we can see it written down to read it. And I knew then I had to see about getting my stories published. It had to happen. And I want wains in the next generation to ken that the language is valid. And it's not just for tourist titles. And I also want to create something beautiful and avoid the traditional stereotypes. It's interesting that you say that. In a previous answer before, you mentioned about someone from the first wave of people championing the Scots language and how that person had an influence on you. Uh, Very much so. To become a storyteller. And you mentioned about being in a position where you can help younger people understand their language and understand the, the, the significance of their language and the beauty of their language. And I think it's interesting that you, you see yourself as part of, as a movement. So hopefully you can, you can educate the next generation, if you like, to champion their language. How significant is the language to your own personal cultural identity? It's very significant. I mean, why, why have we been so disconnected from even seeing it as a language? There's loads of Scot, Scots speakers, very strong Scots speakers broad that still call it slang mm. slang takes away its power it's its importance it diminishes it by calling it slang yes there are dialects that exist in different regions but it's still a language and i i mean i got to 38 before i realized i know i'm i'm that old I got to 38 before i realized that the gaelic was spoken as far down it's Dumfries and Galloway. We haven't been taught a lot about ourselves as a nation. I mean, you could get political about it, but I'm no wanting to right now. But I think there is a rise in pride in who we are as a people in our place in the world, that we are valid, we are clever. We can speak all these languages. We can speak English and Scots. And our Scots has survived and it's evolved um, through through all the years, despite being told, I mean, I ken a lot of older people and they've been told when they were wains, they were told to speak proper. Some even got belted at school for it. Can you imagine that? Mm. Can you, it's barbaric and it kind of makes me a wee bit angry, but I'm loving this new wave. I'm loving, there's a huge embrace from schools around Scotland and the education for Scots language. And it always amazes me and makes me very, very happy indeed. So as well as telling your stories in Scots, is it right in saying that you're also telling the story of Scots and, be, and being one of the people who add a voice to that story? 
Well, it depends on my audience. I mean, I don't get try. I don't get too heavy about it. Mm. Um, you know, if I'm with a school, I'll tell them that their voice, whatever for whether they speak Polish, whether they speak Arabic, whether they speak Scots, English, whatever language they speak with, it's beautiful and it's valid, and it's important as any other voice that we hear, and we should be listening to each other as well. Is that the reason why you've recently completed a commission for the Scots House, um, where you filmed yourself telling stories in Scots, um, noticeably in Mowbray, in fact? Oh, beautiful Mowbray. Oh, I love that place. Well, when I got the commission, I, I, I was at, part of the commission was to film some clips of me reading the story, and I thought the stories that I would, I would then go on to write and my immediate thoughts of, well, you need a good place, a good location. And I immediately thought that beautiful patchwork armchair <laughs> in the reading room at Mowbray. So that, well, that was a given. So I had to schmooze and ask if I could use the space, which of course you very, very kindly let me use, with Connor Bradley, who's an amazing young filmmaker, just starting out. And I understand yeah, those resources are going to be available for Scottish schools and for young people to access. And yeah, yeah, they're already available. They're already available. They're on scotshouse.com, which I think the website's getting a, a revamp. But each, you know, the, it's sectioned off. So if you're teaching nursery children, there's there's resources there, and there's resources for primary and for secondary. And Matthew. Uh, Fit has been great in getting a load of different people to create content to support very interesting resources that educators can use. Because not every teacher in Scotland speaks Scots, Mm. (laughs) which is fine, which is great. Um, So, uh, for example, recently, um, recently, one of our primary school at St Andrews Day, they wanted to read Nip Nebs and the Last Berry. But the teacher who chose to read it found that she struggled because she is not a natural Scots speaker. And she said to me, I struggled to read that. And it's not because of your writing, it's because it's not my natural language. I said, well, it'd be like that for me because if it was French, I wouldn't be able to read, read it out loud. I'd find that really difficult. So I'm really thinking that this is the way forward, that more Scots language resources should be out there so that teachers can just press play that's how it sounds that's how it should sound so that the children get it and they get it as well Susie as well as being a storyteller and a champion of the Scots language and Scottish culture you're also an author um, you've written two books published by Curly Tail Books Nip Nibs and Nip Nibs and the Last Berry both in Scots and both featuring the adventures of Nip Nibs a Jack Frost like character would you say that's fair to say? Ah, he's, he is Jack Frost. It's just his Scots name is Nip Nebs. There's Jack uh, Frost. <laughs> what inspired you to write about Nip Nebs? Going back er, like earlier, I was telling you I was translating all my all my other stories I'd written in, in English, translating them into Scots. Hmm. One of them was called The Last Berry. And in the original Last Berry, Nip Nebs' character wasn't there. It was a totally different character. But while I was translating the words for that, you'll notice at the start of the book, it was a call, it was a cold, frosty morning in old Jeannie's garden. So I translated that into Scots. And as I was looking for a word for frost and cold, I discovered uh, Scots words that 
I didn't know existed. Um, words like skinkles, which means sparkling. Mm. Crumshy, which is the sound of snow frost makes under your feet. Crumshy, crumshy, crumshy. Shockles, which is another word, a Scots word for icicles. Shockles. It's so onomatopoeic. Mm. And each word was like a jeweled sweetie in my mouth when I said them out loud. So you do that just now. Say the word shockles. Shockles. Doesn't that sound lovely? <laughs> Does feel nice in your mouth? And I recalled childhood memories of wonder um, with frosty mornings going to scale. I used on the inside of my window because I grew up in a council house in Lockside, so we, we didn't have double glaze in there. Um, my father telling me about um, Jack Frost and how he'd nip my neb and my teas if it didn't wrap up warm. And, and when I discovered Jack Frost was called nip nebs because, I'm going to blow your mind now, because he nips your neb, your nose. Nice. Everyone's like, wow, of course it is. <laughs> <laughs> when I discovered that, I just, I just had to weave the words into a poem story. Um, I showed that to my friend Ruthie Redden, uh, who is an artist, and she wanted to paint him. And all the rest is history. The books are beautifully illustrated by Ruthie Redden. How important, and she has a very unique style, Ruthie, particularly when oh. it comes to illustrating your books and illustrating the character of Nip Nebs. How important are Ruthie's illustrations to the stories? Oh, they're incredibly important. Without Ruthie, Nip Nebs wouldn't be what it is. Because what Ruthie does is she captures the essence of childhood wonder in her illustrations. And it's not just with nicknames. If you look at Ruthie Redden's other artwork, it's there. It, it's a childlike wonder looking out. And, it, and when, you, when you open up nicknames books, there, is, there are just so many details at every turn. And also, if you're, if you're struggling with the Scots words in it, because you're not used to reading them, and you're not used to speaking them out loud, if you're struggling with that, the illustrations actually tell the story themselves. I mean, my, my words can just be completely wiped off the page and th those books would, would completely stand and exist as they are absolutely perfectly as a story in itself. I completely agree. It's worth noting, actually, that um, Nib Nibs in particular, the, the first book, drew the attention of quite a lot of people. Um, it was shortlisted, I understand, for the Burns Book of the Year at the Scots <laughs> Language Awards 2019. You must be very proud. I am extremely proud proud of that that 2019 was a an epic year for me <laughs> and Ruthie and and Carly Teal but it was just epic the Scots Language Awards never existed before and all of a sudden here it was I was invited to perform my own poems on on the stage as well uh, and to be nominated and then shortlisted was just incredible with, with our book, Nip Nibs. It was just fantastic. I mean, we didn't win. We didn't win. Not that I'm bitter. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm actually just so pleased to have been part of all that. What was it like being surrounded by people who appreciated the Scots flavour? Oh, <laughs> brilliant. <laughs> bro. Absolutely <laughs> bro. It just... It felt like everything that I had been working for um, and towards was just a wonderful celebration. It's like, we are doing the right things here. We are 
completely on the right path. Mm. And 2019 was great for that because not only did we get shortlisted for Scots Bairns Book of the Year with nicknames, although we didn't win that time, I'm not better. I think I might have said that before. Anyway, <laughs> um, despite all that, I mean, the, we also got the, the Scots Publication Grant mm. for to publish the second book from the Scottish Government. And we got mentioned in Parliament for all our hard work as well. So it was a great ending to 2019. So September, October, November was just full of joy for us uh, on the Nicknames team. Then we hit 2020. How were you coping with the lockdown um, as a storyteller and as a writer? Oh, at first it was very, very strange. I mean, my diary was full right up till November this year, which is the the first year since going self-employed that my diary has been so chock-a-block and I felt secure and now it was just ripped away from me but I don't know I have I have a good way of looking at things I'm quite good at prioritizing what's important and what was more important was just to keep safe keep people around me safe people I love safe and sane and comforted you know focus on the kids, uh, focus on my family, make sure they're all right. When my dad was in hospital for the start of lockdown, which was very difficult because we couldn't visit him. So the very start of lockdown was incredibly hard. The commission was still, for Scott's House, was still to be completed. The films were still to finish editing. The plan was to visit the local primary school and get the kids to do some illustrations for the stories and then edit the stills into the finished film. But of course, couldn't do that. So I set it as an online activity and sent it to lots of people. And they sent me the stills back of the pictures their children drew. Oh, that was beautiful. That was that kept me afloat. Like I'm still connected to my audience. And what are your plans for the future? Well, my future plans is I'd like to create more educational resources like we've done with Yum and Leashed. I'd love to create more. So I'm kind of hoping that when it's safe to do so, that we can you know, have some space at Mowbray to to create more films and for it to be a mutual benefit. Because, I mean, the other thing is working with Mowbray. Mowbray is a centre for children's literature and storytelling. And when you think of children's literature, you just think most folk just think of the English version of children's literature, Mm. which is fine. Um, And for Mowbray to be working with people like myself is further validation on top of the Scots Language Awards, on top of the, the government getting behind us and, and validating our work. Um, it's great. It's inclusive and um, it's mutual. And it's, it's a lovely thing. It feels like we're part of everything else. We are not separate. We are, we, are, we are all part of the same thing, which is literature, which is important for children. Susie, I'm afraid we're going to have to leave it there. It's been really interesting, but we're coming to the end of the show. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for having me and I'm looking forward to hearing this podcast and many, many more.